All right, let's do it. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. We've got the new power lineup, Ezra Bookleave, uh, Darlind, and Sarah Cliff uh, are, are with me. It's, uh, it's, it's amazing. It's, Ooh. it's, Ooh. it's like the crossover just podca- keeps crossing over. <laughs> I'm excited to podcast with Dara. I'm I'm here to talk about some white papers. Yeah, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. Um, we got we got a good white paper. We Dara is 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 on for white papering, so we're going to talk about baseball. She's a baseball fan. It, this is the most exciting possible thing that they may or may not have saved this white paper for my being on the weeds. Um, <laughs> it's yeah, it's going to be great. You need to get rid of Ezra to talk about sports. He's like he's like the kind of person who makes a lot of sports ball jokes, and you know it's it's no, it's annoying. Right. But first, but first we have the, the census. census, right? So a huge controversy is brewing about the census and uh, the asking of a question about citizenship on the census. And you know, there's been a lot of coverage of this, but I, I think you know this is Vox, this is the weeds. I, I think a lot of the coverage just sort of skips past like the real basics here, right? So they do a census every 10 years. It's in the Constitution. It's important because that's how they divvy up House seats. Uh, It's also all kinds of federal funding formulas are based on the census count of your population. So it's like, you know, there's like grants for housing assistance. There's grants for all kinds of things. And they give more money to the places that have more people in them. So, you know, you want to know how many people there are. But there's There's like a a twist, right? The census uses a method for ascertaining the population that I think one would not normally use to try to count things. Yeah, I mean, I I think that we tend to assume, you know, in the year 2018, we have sophisticated demography and sophisticated statistics. And so, you know, there are lots of ways that social scientists have been working on for centuries to get an accurate portrait of a population without literally going up to everybody's door. The census does not allow you to use any of those for the official every 10 years count. The Constitution is, is you know, pretty clear about an actual enumeration. And sometimes there have been, you know, challenges to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court has said, no, 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 you're allowed to use fancy statistics to model and sample the population for other things. But when you're doing the decennial census, you have to go door to door to door to door to door, uh, which means you have to, A, know where people's doors are, which is something that reveals some biases against people who, like, live in unconventional places or whose address might change. And you need to actually get them to either fill out the paper form in this year go online uh, or to answer the door when a census, you know, worker comes to try to get them to respond if they haven't responded before. So there are obvious reasons why certain populations might be, you know, substantially less likely than others to fill out the form or show, you know, answer the door or to even have the census know where they are to begin with. And the census can't do anything about that. When it has holes, it has to try to assume the characteristics of the household by imputing the characteristics of their nearest neighbor or something like that. It's not allowed to say, well, we know that we have fewer black respondents or fewer Latino respondents, so we're going to rejigger those numbers to reflect their actual percentage of the population. And I think one of the key things that's been changing in that space is it's getting harder to find households. This is something um, Carlos Waters, who does videos here at Vox, did a great video on. And one of the things he notes is that the cost per household has just skyrocketed in recent years. And, you know, he talks to census bureaus, former directors who talk about how it's this two to three percent of the population that's really become more challenging to track down. You know, some of the situations they talk about people in, you know, rural areas that can be difficult to get to that have become much more sparsely populated. So it is more effort, you know, to go out to a community where there's only maybe 20 people that might have had 100 people. Meanwhile, in urban areas, you see, you know, he actually very smartly uses a scene from um, the last season of Master of None, where you have a taxi driver who's living in an apartment with four other taxi drivers who are each a distinct household to themselves. And like, Sarah saying the census basically says you have to count all of those people. So one of the things that's happening with the census is even if you keep 
the funding at previous levels, it'll likely be underfunded because of these, you know, the challenge of counting people and because this is a still a paper-based product. My understanding is there's a move towards more online census for 2020, but it has gotten more challenging for Census Bureau officials to get people to fill out a very lengthy paper survey when people are just, you know, I think taking their mail less seriously, not as, um, you know, willing to send back a survey to the government. So that's one of the things that really stuck out to me in kind of getting ready for this episode is that even if you kept the funding steady because of these challenges of finding every household in America that, that have increased since the 2010 census, since the 2020 census, it's still going to be underfunded with steady funding. Yeah, I mean, this is just to, to clarify quickly, the 2020 census will is the first time that an online option is kind of being pushed as the primary way. There are going to be there's there's currently a field test being run in Providence right now. And in Providence, people can currently go and like go to census.gov and put in their census form. And then they're going to send the paper forms to people who haven't, you know, already gone online. But that kind of raises its own questions about you're totally changing the methodology of the census. Maybe you should just change that and not change other things. Right. So I want to refocus on censorship, yeah. but just to say as, as a baseline, with a, a normal estimating method, right, what you are trying to do is have it be roughly equally likely that you are overcounting or undercounting. But with the census, it's it's the actual enumeration requirement means it's like estimating for for the price is right, right? Where you're you're not gonna you're not gonna count too many people. So in 2010 they actually did. They they estimated that they slightly overcounted because it's a lot easier to overcount households where like the parents are divorced and both parents have independent houses and they're both counting their children, for example. Even though like there's only one child in the household, they're both counting him so he becomes two children. So the fact that they overcounted it itself says something because it's an indication of how much easier it is to find certain kinds of people in certain kinds of situations than other kinds of people. And like that overcount was not consistent across ethnic groups, right? They overcounted white people. They still undercounted African-Americans and Latinos. Okay. So they ask you to fill out a form. Uh, Traditionally, they ask you to fill out a paper form. Now there's going to be an online option. And then also if you don't fill out the form, they like try to send a census taker after you to to, to answer the questions for you. Uh, The form has a bunch of different questions. Questions on it. Uh, people who have filled out census forms in the past know, you know, it like basically like ask you, you got kids, et cetera, that kind of thing. Um, and now they are going to ask, are you a citizen of the United States of America? Seems like something you might want to know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly it's something that has been asked as part of government surveys for a while. It was part of the main census form until 1950. After the 1950 census, it got put on what's called the long forms census, uh, which was the kind of even longer, like more detailed version. Uh, That got phased out in 2000 because they were doing an annual version of it instead called the American Community Survey. So it's something that some group of people has been asked by the United States government for demographic purposes consistently. But American Community Survey is a statistical sample. Exactly. For one thing, it's a statistical sample. For another thing, it's simply, it's like 1% of the population getting asked every year. The concerns of an an undercount are much less substantial there because there's something where they can fix that model. So among the various concerns about there being a citizenship question is the fact that, like, literally the Census Bureau is just finalizing its questions now. There isn't the kind of testing process that there usually is for questions. There's usually years and years in development. Jeff Sessions basically asked the Commerce Department to ask about citizenship on the census last fall. He said it was important to enforce the Voting Rights Act. Uh, The census said, sure, let's go ahead with that uh, last week. Apparently blindsiding their own advisory committees, like literally a member of their scientific advisory committee gave a presentation last week after the announcement where the first slide of her presentation was WTH, what the hell, Um, and just talked about like how they had totally blown up the census. It's not super clear whether all of these fears are necessarily justified. But, you know, just to to give you a sense, this is absolutely a big curveball that the Census Bureau and people who 
kind of follow and rely on the census have been thrown. Derek, can you talk about the argument? So what is justice asking for? Like, what is the connection to the Voting Rights Act? What is their case for adding this question and kind of like how how you think about the argument they're making there? Sure. So one of the tools for the federal government to enforce voting rights is to sue states in particular if they're drawing districts in a way that dilutes the impact of voters of color, Uh, you know, whether that's by splitting them up into districts, into multiple districts where they're going to be the minority or packing them all into a single district so that there's only one representative who's representing a bunch of people of color. Various courts have determined that the way they want to judge whether a district matches the population and is a good representation of voters of color is by the citizen voting age population in particular. They really want that statistic. That statistic is one that they can get from, you know, the American Community Survey, which has actually been asking about that and which is going to give you updated information. There are a couple of problems there. Uh, One of them is that you only redistrict every 10 years. Uh, That's on the census timeline. But the American Community Survey is, you know, more of a rolling thing. But the other thing is that it's, you know, it's a sample of the population. It's not necessarily the whole thing. So Sessions is saying that in order to enforce the Voting Rights Act, what they really need is to have an official census count of the citizens and voting age population. That's not something that a judge is asking for. It's something that the Justice Department has decided they want. The concern on the left is that that's not really the reason, right, is that they're using that as a smokescreen because there are plenty of people in the conservative movement in the Trump administration who believe that representation should be decided not just by like the citizen voting age population for minority voting purposes, for Voting Rights Act purposes, but that districts should be drawn based on 250,000 citizens rather than 250,000 people, uh, which is currently how it's done. So gathering that information makes it a whole bunch easier when Congress is deciding how to apportion things to various states for Congress to say, well, yeah, California has a lot of people, but a lot of them are non-citizens. So we're actually not going to give it as many congressional seats as we would have otherwise. It's important to be clear about this, right? Because I think you have probably heard, if you are a Vox fan in particular, since the 2016 election, a lot of complaints from left of center people about the ways in which their views are underweighted in the American political system, gerrymandering in the House of Representatives, Senate overrepresentation of rural states, electoral college letting Trump win. One important offsetting variable on this is that House districts are drawn to have equal numbers of residents, right? And so that means that children, non-citizens, and even undocumented people go into the, the numerator. And so there are very different numbers of eligible voters across different House districts. This has not traditionally been a big bone of partisan contention because it inflates California, but it also inflates Texas, and they roughly offset each other. But with the Republican Party becoming more zealous in its views on immigration, and also with Texas becoming less conservative, even while parts of the upper Midwest become more conservative, this is this sort of long dormant question of representation is starting to become an active thing where the sort of virtual representation of particularly Hispanic, although also Asian immigrants, mostly in California and Texas, though to some extent also in in Nevada and Arizona, is like an issue that, that actually impacts American politics. And while like Sessions is not saying that's why no. they want to do this count, in order to redo it, to throw the immigrants out of the count, you would need this citizenship question. And the citizenship question would have to be on the census, right? For Voting Rights Act purposes, if you're just litigating, right? There's like a million things in play in Voting Rights Act litigation. There's no reason you couldn't use American Community Survey data for that. Right. Like, like it would be fine. No judge would throw that out. But if you want to change how redistricting works, it has to be on the official census. And so that would be a it would be a legitimate reason to do this, right? Like if you wanted to change the apportionment basis to citizens rather than residents, you have to count citizens and you have to count them on the official census form. But I think there's a question of if you can even 
do that with, you know, how quickly the administration is moving. Um, you know, I think one of the things that Dara mentioned is that the census tends to have pretty rigorously researched questions. They implement things on a years-long timeline, not usually, you know, a months-long timeline. So even doing something right now in 2018, two years before the census, is pretty quick for how the survey moves. I remember when they were switching, there was a whole controversy a few years ago about switching the way that they count health insurance. And this was a years-long process. There was like overlap of the two questions. So you'd have continuity. You could compare how the two different ones compare. And I think one of the tricky things, you know, about asking about citizenship that I really learned about from your explainer, Dara, is that it doesn't seem to be the type of question that often elicits accurate answers. And it seems like we know this from the American community survey, that you just see a lot of people who couldn't possibly be citizens, who've only lived in the U.S. for one year, for example, checking that they that they are a citizen. Um, and it, it seems like the information one is going to get from this question isn't going to be very good, that there'd be a reason, particularly because we know from previous research that the citizenship question doesn't always elicit the best information and that it's being done in such a rushed way. I, I feel like there's pretty fair reason to worry about the data that it's going to create if you did want to switch to this kind of different um, apportionment system. I think that that's definitely fair, although I think it's probably worth noting that there's evidence that the information isn't very good, but all it takes is a small portion of people answering the question incorrectly to make the data useless, that doesn't necessarily mean that more of them are answering it incorrectly than correctly. So on net, you know, it's maybe a, a more slight advantage, but it's still an advantage to people who would want to change apportionment. But this gets to kind of the bigger worry that the citizenship question is raising the more media one, which is that there's already a substantial chilling effect among immigrants in general, especially unauthorized immigrants, but both legal immigrants and in many cases, U.S. citizen Latinos, uh, to answering the door when the federal government is on your doorstep, period. They actually have found this during the pre-testing, in cases where there is a really, really robust, you know, making sure everyone knows about their rights and privacy and all of that because they're doing pre-testing. So they kind of have the luxury of doing that. Even in those cases, people were extremely wary of answering any questions that, that they thought were sensitive. There was a case where one woman was like in her trailer with the census taker and the woman stood up and left her own trailer and just left the census taker alone in the trailer because she didn't want to answer any questions. People would, you know, lie because they didn't want to give anybody away. They would just refuse to answer. They would ask a lot of questions about how are you sure that this information won't be shared. So even though legally speaking, whatever information the Commerce Department gets on citizenship won't be information that they can like hand over to ICE. And I know that there are a lot of people who are you know, who think that even though this is illegal, that doesn't mean the Trump administration won't do it. Like sometimes you have to just accept that not all risks are equal. And the risk of people actually getting deported because they checked a box saying they were a non-citizen, especially because it's non-citizen, it's not what's your legal status, is much lower than the risk that someone will be afraid that that will happen and therefore won't answer the census at all. So there's a real concern that these fears that are not super well-grounded are going to end up disenfranchising Latino communities because there will be such a massive under-response. And then there's a there's a secondary fear, right? Which is, I, I mean, it just needs to be said that, like, there's a lot of bad faith hunting around here, right? I mean, I think that if anybody thought that what was going on here was that the Trump administration really, really, really wanted to improve voting rights act enforcement in the sense of like acting more zealously and sincerely to improve the electoral representation of racial and ethnic minorities in the United States and that they had reluctantly concluded that in order to achieve this lofty goal, they needed to add the citizenship question to the census. There could be a way to do this that might work, right? But to the extent that you know, we perceive the downside risk here as being that Latinos will not respond to the census and that by not responding to the census, they'll wind up getting less representation in state legislatures for their community and less funding for their community's needs, the Trump administration will see that as a win. So 
rather than pulling out all the stops to reassure everybody that like this is great and like this is going to be good for you and like everybody should cooperate it's you have a situation that people are anxious about and you have an administration that is not necessarily interested in relieving those anxieties like i don't think at all honestly that homeland security and the census bureau are going to team up to completely illegally engage in this data sharing that would not even be really useful to ice in any way Th- that to me like I-, I i understand that people are anxious about this but it is not a reasonable anxiety to have but the trump administration i think is not going to try to alleviate that anxiety like you don't see Tom Honan out there talking about how pointless it would be for him to try to illegally access census data that like this doesn't that like a like it really is illegal. And, you know, the rule of law continues to be in effect in the United States. Right. I would say in a pretty strong way. It's not only illegal. It's illegal in a way that would require lots of civil servants to go along with something they knew to be illegal without whistleblowing about it. And given the, you know, given what we've seen of the Trump administration so far, it's extremely difficult to believe that a lot of Census Bureau employees are going to be like totally okay with, you know, breaking the law and not feel the need to go to the press. And with no upside. I mean, this would be a terrible way of trying to catch extra undocumented immigrants. Like, it doesn't make any sense, really. Look, communities who feel suspicious of the federal government are going to feel suspicious of the federal government. But, like, the reason that this particularly elevates the odds of an undercount is that, like, there is no Census Bureau director in place right now to be leading the charge to make this work, right? Like, the president is tweeting crazy, I don't know, stuff about caravans and, you know, catch and release. And, like, that's, like, the real issue here, it, it seems to me. It's like, particularly because there doesn't seem to be a good reason to ask the citizenship question, and there is a real fear that it will lead to an undercount, and then the whole drive is being led by people who don't mind if there's an undercount. Right. And like, that's well, why we have a problem. and then you layer on top of that a census that seems to be quite underfunded. So it's like, you take like an agency that doesn't have a director, that doesn't seem to have enough budget to do the task it is supposed to do, and then say, oh, by the way, do this other thing that you need to add onto the census with very little time and, um, you know, that could drastically change or at least significantly change the outcomes of the data that you're collecting. It's like layering it on top of a census even before we started having the question about the citizenship, you know, question that there was this concern that the census really wasn't going to have enough money. So I think, you know, to broaden out a little bit, you know, the citizenship question, I think we'll have a lot to do with Latino representation in the census, but we're already looking at like other minority vulnerable groups, you know, minority populations, people who live in rural areas who will be less likely to be counted because the funding for the census hasn't really kept up with the challenge of tracking down those people. So it's not, you know, I think the citizenship question is not happening in a vacuum. It's happening in a census that is already missing a director and, you know, dealing with a lack of funding. One thing I want to ask, though, Dara, if you're able to talk about mm-hmm. this, is like how done of a deal is the citizenship question? Because I know it is for sure done. They have sent for the final sure. list. So the states call- cannot do anything because we have those state lawsuits yeah. kind of pending out there. What's the deal with those? In theory, nothing's finalized until they've printed stuff out. And actually, there are stories about like, the census adding a question one year after many of them had been printed, but they just printed out a few versions that were different and did some sampling magic. But it's done insofar as the executive branch has made its decision. Any attempt to change it would be extraordinary measures. In theory, Congress can kind of exercise some kind of extraordinary oversight. In theory, the courts could just straight up rule it unconstitutional to ask about citizenship. I am not seeing a lot of legal experts saying that that is a likely thing to happen. It's certainly and it, it's it's kind of difficult because it's very obvious that the states that are suing are suing for political reasons because they're the ones who would lose out. Um, that is a legitimate reason to sue, but it also makes it a political question. I, so. I also think you know it, it's noteworthy, right? I mean, it's a it's a it's a sign of the times in part, but that like. Texas is not among the states that is suing, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, one traditional thing that would have blocked this is that, like, 
it's true that liberals are the people who are most likely to care about this, but like in a concrete way, if you undercount Latinos, particularly if you undercount non-citizen Latinos, uh, a big red state is going to lose out on federal funding streams. But we are now at like a point in American political history where Texas Republicans are like all in on the Republican Party and conservatism and what it means now and are not going to be engaged with anything as petty as like we want our fair share of federal grant formulas. Um, that makes it like a harder sell, I think, in some ways. You know, you have just like liberal coastal states where people don't like Donald Trump. Yeah. And I think the other thing that makes this really hard is the Census Bureau is saying, and they're correct, that there isn't hard data suggesting that there's going to be a chilling effect that would have a real effect on the census count. Like, for one thing, if people are already freaked out, it's not clear what adding a citizenship question does on the margin. For another thing, for obvious reasons, it's very hard to do social science on who is being not counted by social science. Right. Um, so they're they're right. That, like, this is basically anecdata. There isn't hard data one way or the other. Of course, the response to that that the critics have given is, we would actually have better data if you had gone through the standard process in testing this question. <laughs> and maybe the fact that we don't have data is a reason not to do it. But I, I do want to get back to what Sarah was saying about uh, underfunding, because I think it's kind of important to understand just where in the process we are with that. For the omnibus that Congress just passed gives the Census Bureau like a bunch of money, more than the Trump administration asked for for 2018, like they're actually they're actually OK as far as where they should be in 2018. The problem is that they didn't have enough money for 2016, 2017, and they're extremely worried about money for 2019, 2020. So back in 2010, they did a census and the census cost about $12.5 billion, which is the kind of like I don't know. This is this is federal government stuff. Like twelve point five billion. That sounds like a lot of money. It is a lot of money. A lot of people were involved, but in the scale of the federal budget, it's it's peanuts. Um, but Republicans also took Congress in twenty ten, and one of the things that they did was that they mandated that the twenty twenty census should also cost twelve point five billion dollars. Right, and so. Adjusted for inflation, that means they have less money to do the census, and yet the population has grown, so you have more people, less money to count them with. The most basic like census doorwalking effort where like you hire some guys and they go around and they're like, yo, who lives here? That for uh, the technical account of this is, is Baumol's cost disease, but it's the kind of thing where the, the real cost of doing that grows over time, right? When my great-grandparents were being surveyed in the Bronx by guys walking around knocking on doors, the overall wage rate in the United States was extremely low. You do that in 2020, right? Like, it costs more money to hire somebody to walk around than it used to, but people don't walk faster than they used to. Um, then response rates are declining uh, for some of the reasons Sarah was talking about, right? That if there's a community of a thousand people, you can probably hire a census taker from in that community to run around and knock on the doors. When rural areas start shrinking and you have communities with 20 people or 35 people, then you have to hire somebody who doesn't live there. They've got to drive around and then knock on the doors, right? So there's there's lots of reasons to think that the 2020 census should have had more money than the 2010 census, which to be clear is just normal. That's just like normal government agency stuff, like the budget rises over time. But instead it has less. And so because it's had less, they've had to keep economizing on things over time. So one idea they had was, well, we're going to save money by letting people – because the census has sort of two big phases. One is people self-report by just filling out the form and mailing it back. And then the other is they send census takers out to catch you. So they wanted to let people self-report on the internet or on phone apps, which would be even cheaper than doing it on the paper forms. So then that would save money and they could plow more money into the other stuff. But they haven't had the funds to do a lot of testing of those things. Um, they also floated the idea of, well, maybe we should make a whole Spanish census, right? And, and that that could address some of the undercounting problems, but they couldn't run tests on that, so they had to scrap that, right? And so it looked recently, like we were sort of plummeting to a total catastrophe. But 
the most recent omnibus sort of rides to the rescue and provides, at least for next year, or for the remain, I guess it's the remainder of this fiscal right. year. A, a so re- for the summer. Right. So there, there's a reasonable amount of money coming forward for the next six months. But in the planning phases of the census, they have had not enough money. Right. So they had an idea to save money, but they haven't really tested how well it works. They had some ideas to improve counter accuracy, but they haven't been able to implement them. They cut the number of dress rehearsals. They were going to have like, you know, one field test in a rural area, one field test in a suburban area, and one field test in an urban area. Uh, They cut the rural and suburban field tests because they were going to happen back when they weren't getting enough money in 2017. So like the test in Providence right now is the first, last, and only field test the census is going to have. And it doesn't it's not going to address the questions that Sarah and Matt have been raising about how do you count rural people in 2020. Right. And it's not clear what's going to happen in the future, right? So, I mean, also, part, you know, the census is a 10-year process, but it's like you spend a little money for the first five, six years of that process just kind of getting ready. And then you got to spend a lot of money in like the final two years to actually do the census. They kind of underfunded the prep stage. And now there's a question as to like what's going to happen in crunch time. One thing you have not seen is Jeff Sessions and Mick Mulvaney saying, hey, we have this like ambitious plan to change how the census works and the citizenship and like we really want to improve count accuracy. So we're making like a big request for extra money so that we can test and implement this well. Instead, their 27 request was for a 10% cut. Uh, their 2018 request was for flat funding. Now, you know, these budget requests tend to get ignored, but again, as a measure of good faith, like a Republican president probably could get a Republican Congress to cough up extra census money if they like had some vision of improving census accuracy that they needed funding for, but they don't. Right. And I think this is the thing where this comes back to the question of differential undercounting because in communities that are less likely to respond to census surveys, there have been big civil society, you know, nonprofit efforts to get people to trust the census, to get people to, to fill it out, to understand why it's important. Those efforts work when they're hand in hand with government efforts. You know, there was a big, big, big advertising campaign on Spanish language television in 2010 that really helped to get Spanish language dominant Latinos in particular on board with the mission of the census. If you're, say, the the head of a community group in, you know, like Denver, and you're seeing this administration being so uninterested in understanding that they might have a problem with, you know, the the new citizenship question or with chilling effects generally, it's worth it to ask, A, is the government going to be putting in its side of the investment? And B, if it's not, am I and my organization really going to need to make the effort to redouble our attempts just to get people to fill out the dang census? Are they expecting us to do their job for them in order to make sure our communities are represented? And I think that's something that a lot of community organizations are really frustrated with. Yeah, I mean, in a weird way, it actually reminds me of, I mean, Obamacare is much more polarizing, but you saw a similar thing happen when the Trump administration basically said, we're not going to pay for outreach. You know, if people want to sign up, that's great. But like, They cut the advertising budget 90%, the in-person enrollment budget 40%. One of the things that actually surprised me, but I think um, this might be a place where the census and health insurance are very different, is that it didn't have the chilling effect on healthcare signups that that I had thought it would, that it turns out when people want health insurance, they sign up for health insurance when there is still a penalty for not having health insurance. We saw enrollment go down a little bit, but the census is, is... Different. You don't get anything out of filling out the census, right? Like you don't. You, right. they, they, I mean, maybe or on you like do, some, but like down the road, do, right? Like you like get in the form of a playground, exactly. And it's like hard to see, and you don't know the connection between like the census form you filled out in 2020 and like the playground that showed up in your neighborhood in 2025. I think one of the reasons a program like the census needs a robust outreach effort is that it's not the sort of thing where 
you fill out a form and you get like a government benefit right away. You get an Amazon gift card or whatever for doing it that it the the gains don't seem to accrue to the person doing the work and it is it is significant work like i think anyone who's filled out a census form you know knows that it's you know it does take some investment of time and i think it's a program that does not run especially well without some kind of invested outreach and i think that's a great question you raise of you know i could see it going Either way, one with community groups saying, like, we understand the stakes are so high, so we are going to step in. You know, we are going to provide this. Um, I actually saw some of that with Obamacare outreach, local foundations, you know, increasing their grant making to fill in this play, the role that the government wasn't playing. But, you know, it's the, the government has a lot more flexibility with funding. It's really hard for nonprofits, for advocacy groups to step in and find that money. And, you know, you could see advocacy groups deciding the task is just too daunting, that they don't have the budget for it. But I think that's a really big unanswered question about, like, what does the census look like and what does the role of nonprofits look like if if there isn't that same commitment to government outreach? Yeah. And, th- and this is just one of the many things where none of the big questions about this census are going to be answerable until the census is already in the field or even after. Uh, and I think that that's what's really, really worrying everyone who's involved in this process is that the preparation they had didn't include the most controversial thing on here. You know, who knows what's going to happen to funding in the next couple of years, whether Congress is going to continue to ignore the Trump administration's, you know, efforts to to stifle the budget of the Census Bureau. When you have to trust the count you have, you want to make sure in advance that the count you have is accurate. And there are just so many questions about whether that's going to be the case that cannot get answered until spring of 2020 or later. Also, I mean, the fact that nobody is running the Census Bureau is relevant (laughs) here. I mean, not 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 like there was a nominee. He had to withdraw. He was famous for arguing that that gerrymandering was a good thing. So it might not be the worst thing that he withdrew. No, I mean, it's, you know, it's not like go for it, Donald, like we need you on here. But it's again, it's like, what like, what are you trying to accomplish? Right? Like the fact that they have not like installed a good person as Census Bureau director. And also, I mean, it's, it's worth noting, I mean, I was speaking to a person who worked at a senior level in the Commerce Department in the Obama administration. And, you know, she's not a like census expert or something, but just describe this as a large element of what they did, what they were concerned with. The Commerce Department has a role in the trade dispute resolution process. By by statute, the Commerce Department is like a mishmash of things. Um, But she was saying that when they were running the Commerce Department in the lead up to the census, what they were mostly focused on was the census, right? And Wilbur Ross is clearly mostly focused on international trade policy disputes, right? That's like, that's his, that's his thing. Um, and, and that just also speaks to this. It's like nobody has been specifically put in charge of making the census work. The budget requests do not seem aimed to make the census work well. The senior leadership at Commerce is not focused on the census question. And the Justice Department is throwing wrenches in the works rather than trying to make it go well. I think some of the takes on this from like census junkies, census watchers seem a little alarmist to me. Like like the census is definitely going to be a disaster, blah, blah, blah. I understand. I mean, it's like they're trying to raise alarms about this because it's it's concerning. I think, you know, as a realistic forecast, like we don't really know how big of a difference the citizenship thing is. We don't know what funding is going to be like. We don't really know what the implications of not having a director are. But what we can tell is that nobody at the White House or at a senior political level is trying to make the census go off well. Time to talk about baseball. Yep. All right. Stuck baseball. All right. All right. Moving on to other pressing matters of the day. It's um, it was recently opening day. Noted it, Nationals fan. My, my fans, personal Tara opening Lind. day is not until Thursday because ah. they started my Nats on the road. I will get to see them on Thursday. But but yes, I appreciate being able to talk about baseball in the weeds. It has been way too long. <laughs> it's great. Matt, I believe, originally flagged an economics paper from 2011 uh, that is. 
broadly speaking, about the role that individual employees play in spreading bad behavior within firms, but is actually about Jose Canseco. (laughs) Um, So for people who are not baseball fans, you probably are dimly aware that the late 1990s and early 2000s saw really, really widespread use of steroids in baseball that that led to a lot of people who had not previously been known as power hitters suddenly hitting lots of home runs, uh, that this, you know, Major League Baseball has spent the last several years uh, trying to crack down on this, instituted mandatory drug testing more strictly in 2003. There have been a couple of high-profile busts in that time. But the impact of steroids on baseball statistics and players' performance is like no one really knows because not everybody is now coming forward and saying, yeah, I started using steroids in 1994 and I stopped using them in 1999. Please adjust my, st- my metrics right. accordingly. <laughs> right. So we, we know broadly speaking <laughs> yeah. that a lot of steroids were being used roughly in the mid to late 90s and early aughts. But we don't right. We don't really know. know. Right. Most of the players. Well, we know Jose not, Canseco was saying that it, he was giving other people steroids. Exactly. We have not had yes. a rigorous examination of this claim until right. Now. Right. So, so Jose Canseco is one of the few players who has not only been very forthright about saying yes, I use steroids, and very specific about you know when and how, but also has claimed that he was kind of a steroid ambassador um, <laughs> to Major League Baseball in some ways. He named in his memoir several particular players who he had turned on to steroids or given steroids. Those have not necessarily been corroborated. Jose Canseco is also kind of not... He's erratic is the most minimalistic (laughs) way I can put. Like, he he kidnapped a goat a couple of years ago and was tweeting about it. Like, we're not talking about the most reliable narrator. These economists are not necessarily taking him at his word. They're looking at the body of all baseball players who were on a team with Jose Canseco at some point during Canseco's career. And Canseco played for like eight different teams. So there are a lot of baseball players here. And they look at their performance when they were playing with him and after uh, on the logic that if you're turning people onto steroids, like who knows when you're doing that when they're on the same team as you. But if they're if they start using steroids at some point when you're when they're on the team with you, they're probably going to keep using them after you and they are no longer on the same team. And they find a pretty substantial increase, especially in home runs and slugging percentage, which are two extremely good statistics to use for batting power. Players who were playing with Canseco, and especially after they had been on the same team as Canseco, compared to players who were never on a team with Jose Canseco. They run this, they compare this to a bunch of other kind of sluggers who were dominant around that time and find that there's there really is a substantial Canseco effect that appears in players who coincided with him compared to players who coincided with, say, like Ken Griffey Jr. or Barry Bonds or Rafael Palmero. There are baseball-related methodological quibbles um, that have been raised. But, like, you know, I I think that, for one thing, they make a a lot of effort to try to prove that there would be improvements in other players' performance who weren't power hitters, and they look at, like, batting average. There's nothing saying that a steroid is going to make it more likely that you hit a single rather than hitting, like, a ground ball. Um, I am not—I worry that they're trying to prove too much with that in a way that I think— should put an asterisk on the reliability of this data. But like in general, they have a pretty compelling case study of when you have one person who is cutting ethical corners for personal gain, that behavior can spread among, you know, among other employees at the firm if they see that 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 they're getting ahead and not getting caught. And it can spread. It spreads until there's a clear penalty for that behavior. Because I think one of the other things they're showing is that in 2003, which I believe is when they started cracking down more on steroids, mm-hmm. but correct me if I'm wrong, no, that's, Dara, that, as a that, that's solid. non-baseball person, um, that you see a drop-off in some of these statistics that were improving. So I think one of the, I mean, like in a way, this paper feels kind of obvious. If you see someone doing something and they are outperforming you and they're not getting penalized and you think, wow, like, wouldn't it be nice to be as good of a hitter as Jose Canseco or, you know, in other industries, you know, I don't know what other unethical behavior like plagiarism and journalism or doing other things to cut corners. And there is no clear penalty for that. It kind of feels like, well, yeah, like why would you not take on that kind of 
behavior where you could perform and seemingly face no consequences. So I thought that was another interesting part of this, that you only see the kind of things change once there's like a clear penalty um, introduced into the situation. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, obviously there's there's something a little intuitive and obvious and clear about this, but I, I think it's quite relevant. I mean, I think that when we think about things from some of the um, financial industry scandals that we've had to questions that we have about police misconduct and other things, that there's often a sort of few bad apples impulse exists one place or another and to say that, look, you know, individual acts of misconduct like don't necessarily reflect on institutions. And baseball is is always a fun thing to look at because it is very quantified, right? So you can do lots and lots and lots of detailed statistical analysis on, on what's happening in a way that's hard in a lot of sort of real world enterprises and activities. And you know, you're just seeing here that, like, there's a tendency for rot to spread, right? Which it's not like a crazy contention, but, like, it, it is a real thing, right? When there is not zealous efforts at detection and punishment, this kind of wrongdoing spreads throughout organizations and it spreads in, in specific ways, right? It's not just that, like, in general, people started taking performance-enhancing drugs, but specifically, the people who worked with the guy who was breaking the rules and getting away with it started breaking the rules and getting away with it too, right? And then you can see a, a whole transmission mechanism as people get traded and, and swap teams. And you have to detect and punish wrongdoing. It's like, okay, you know, fair enough. Um, but, you know, it's not something that we always do, particularly when the institutions that people work in are powerful politically, financially, or have a lot of cultural clout, right? But that's sort of, I, I mean, I, I don't actually have a super strong view about performance-enhancing drugs in baseball. But for a long time, there was both a sentiment that using steroids was bad, that that was like a bad problem, but also that like baseball was good and we didn't like really want to give baseball a hard time. And like, it, I don't know, it, it doesn't work. I mean, I, I think that the other thing to note here is, and I think of this from a criminal justice perspective, that what changed in 2003 wasn't necessarily that like all of a sudden a few high profile people were caught and punished, right? What changed in 2003 was the universal preventative measure of, you know, they signed a new union agreement that allowed urine testing for all players for the first time since the mid 80s. Um, so the certainty of getting apprehended if you were using steroids increased, not necessarily what you had to fear if you did. And that's worth noting as we continue to have arguments about do you need to increase punishments to make people less likely to do things versus how likely are they to get caught to begin with. But I also think it's true that like there's only one Jose Canseco, right? You can imagine a world where the people who Jose Canseco taught to use steroids go and teach others to use steroids, right? That like mm -hmm. that or that, you know, once you see somebody in your clubhouse who's using, you start using. That's not what happened. It appears that Canseco was unusually evangelical or at least unusually open. And what that says to me is that there was still, even during the steroids era, enough stigma among baseball players that like it wasn't something you talked openly about in clubhouses most of the time. And therefore, you wouldn't necessarily know if your teammate was using, much less feel comfortable approaching him about it. So that actually says that there's a big difference between allowing something to continue quietly and allowing somebody like Ken Seiko, who's like a big brash guy who probably was not only a like leading clubhouse figure because he was a good player, but because he's a big brash guy mm -hmm. to like be talking in semi-open settings about the use of steroids. Right. Because you could see another theory of transmission here where it's the teams that are playing Conseco and getting beat saying like, well, what do we do? How do we act like them? How do we become better? And like the info, like you could see the bad acting transferring in that way because it would make sense for, you know, the competitors going up against him to be the ones who really felt like they needed to gain whatever advantage was there. So I do think, you know, like I said earlier, like it's not surprising when someone has a way to get ahead, other people emulate it. But I think it is, you know, it, you could have seen this going either way. Who is emul who, who is doing the emulating? Is it the people who are 
playing against Conseco, you know, or, you know, if you take it to like finance, is it like other banks that are trying to get a heads up on, you know, the banks that are doing really well, or is it the people closest to that person who can see firsthand, who are, you know, kind of like on the same side, who, who are rooting for the same team. So I think it is interesting, you know, like Dara's saying that there, there wasn't a stigma that you didn't see, even though there would be like a pretty strong incentive for other baseball teams to adapt behavior that could make them better competitors, that it seemed like you read it really needed that like one evangelical steroid user around to to lead to that kind of um, behavior actually changing. The big brash guy factor also, of course, reminds me of Donald Trump, where I feel like there's sort of an endless dialogue takes place in my social circles around, you know, is Donald Trump like a uniquely terrible person in some way? Or has there always been like structural racism in America and elite corruption and powerful men mistreating women? And then it's like, well, no, because like he's so flagrant and blah, blah, blah. And that's really different. And then a kind of almost, you know, ironist, like, no, it's better because he's like flushed the hypocrisy out of the system. And like what you see with Jose Canseco is that it is um, more socially destructive to have the cheater be unsubtle about it. That like we could all look at Barry Bonds and be like, it kind of seems like that guy's juicing. But like that wasn't his story about it, right? And that that is different. That like having people nominally uphold the normative values of the system is restraining impulse, even if they are cheating. And I think you see in the the endless low-grade corruption scandals about the Trump cabinet that it's like having the president clearly not care that he is like has all these business conflicts of interest sends a very different signal to the people on his team than if it was just that like he was in some quiet subtle way being on the take. But I think the the flip side of that, and I'm going to bring this uh, back to Max Weber because Matt and I don't talk enough about Max Weber. But the thing about have the big brash guy style of leadership is it doesn't change those norms permanently, right? Like it's tied very much to that individual. And so this is again where like the fact that you're not seeing second order effects from the people who start, you know, presumably started using steroids because they saw Canseco doing it, you know, themselves not necessarily talking to their teammates about it. It's if you have one guy who can flagrantly violate the norms and get away with it, and that inspires people to ride his coattails, if the coattails disappear, that doesn't necessarily inspire people to, you know, take up the cause and become the, you know, continue on the path forged by the leader. It's like, oh, well, that era is kind of done now. You know, we now have a new leader. It's, it makes it very difficult for institutions to persist, uh, which is why, you know, bureaucracy is a more modern style of governance than charismatic leadership. But it does mean that if you have an aberration and the aberration, you know, because it's a person dies or goes away, that things can return to, if not normal, at least their previous level of stigmatization. All right. Go baseball. <laughs> uh, from baseball to Max Weber, um, that is fantastic. <laughs> um, you know, podcast uh, thought leadership exists with both charismatic leadership, with you telling your friends and family about the weeds and how much you, sh- you should like it, but also through bureaucratic rational methods. You need to rate us on iTunes, wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, go door to door like your local there, census there's, worker. There's multiple. Do not go door to door. We are not <laughs> responsible for this. It's underrepresented. <laughs> communities might become alarmed if you show up at their door recommending podcasts. Uh, But I do think, you know, telling your friends, but also telling anonymous internet bureaucracies about how great this show is, is a wonderful idea. So with all that, uh, let's uh, thank our engineer, Griffin Tanner, our producer, Bridget Armstrong. Uh, We are going to be back on Friday. Mm -hmm.